0: For the week of Friday, January 11th, 2019, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, we get an up-close look at the humanitarian crisis happening at the Mexico border with Jennifer Podkull. She is the Senior Director of Policy and Advocacy for the D.C.-based group Kids in Need of Defense, or KIND, and she recently traveled to Tijuana to investigate the conditions for immigrant children there. She joins us to talk about what she saw and about what can be done. In the second half of the show, we will have our weekly calls to action with indivisible washington's eighth team leader stephen wilhelm that's all ahead so stay with us In an effort to drum up support for his wall, Trump used his primetime speech on Tuesday to make the case that there is a crisis of illegal immigration at our southern border. But experts across the spectrum have pointed out that this simply isn't the case. Illegal crossings are at their lowest rate in decades, down two-thirds since their peak in 2001, and suspected terrorists trying to get into the country have been apprehended at airports and not at the border. What there is, though, is a humanitarian crisis. CPB records report some 280 deaths ...along the Mexico border, and that includes two children. And on the Tijuana side, the situation is just as dire, if not more so, particularly for the children there and specifically for the children who have arrived unaccompanied. My guest Jennifer Podcole is the Senior Director of Policy and Advocacy for the D.C.-based group Kids in Need of Defense or KIND. She recently went to Tijuana and witnessed the conditions there and was the lead author on a report about what she encountered. We talked to Jennifer in May of last year to discuss the Trump administration's family operation policy, and we welcome her back to the show now. Jennifer Pockwell, thank you so much for being here again.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So as I said, you uh, traveled down to Tijuana. Um, give us a sense of the conditions that you saw children living in there.
1: Sure. So what's happened is there was a large group of migrants traveling from different countries in Central America who had formed this caravan and decided that they felt like it was the safest thing to do was to try to go to the port of entry at Tijuana, so where Tijuana and San Diego meet. And this is the largest border crossing actually anywhere in the world. Um, But what happened is Customs and Border Protection limited how many people they said they would accept each day. So they put up concertina wire, they closed car lanes, and they really squeezed um, and limited how many people could get through each day. So people could not just walk up to the port of entry and ask for protection. And so what's happened is a lot of these people were forced to stay in Tijuana for a long period of time, but didn't have anywhere to go. There were no migrant shelters. There were no uh, facilities that were able to hold this large number of people. When they first got there, there were about 6,000 people who are looking to present themselves and ask for protection from the U.S. government. So what happened is they first congregated in a like an outdoor sports arena, and they lived there. Uh, there was no uh, potable water. There were no bathroom facilities. And bit by bit, they got donations either from food, um, some tents. So it ended up being this very muddy, um, very dirty area where people were being forced to sleep just near feet from the wall. I mean, you could just, you know, you could throw a stone um, at the wall because they were so close to the wall, so Um. close to U.S. territory, but they couldn't quite get there and present themselves. So by the time we got there in mid-December, the Mexican government had moved a large number of people outside of the sports complex and moved them to another area. Uh, about 11 miles away from the border uh, to a big area that was just kind of like a big concrete area. I think it it was a place where there used to be concerts in Tijuana. So when we got there, people were living in tents. Um, They had some porta potties there. Um, and there were some um, entities who are giving out food for free. So the Mexican military had a stand where they were giving some food. Um, there is a, a chef from Washington, D.C. who set up a, a charity and he was giving out food to people there. there. There was a little bit of in terms of immigration agents monitoring the facility. Um, UNICEF was there, the U.N. agency that cares for children. They had provided some services and some bathrooms to children and families. Um, But it really was just a huge number of people living outside in the elements.
0: Mm. And, and in terms of what you saw specifically with children, uh, your report paints a, a pretty terrible picture. You say that, uh, among other things, you witnessed a toddler having a seizure. You say that you learned about a young girl who had been selling her body to get food for her younger sister. I mean, this is just horrifying.
1: Yeah I mean this really was it was like an it's an unregulated place it's very dangerous it's unclear who's going in and out of there um there's no one really controlling it and they're you know people are just relying on the goodwill of others to get food and everything they need and when we saw this poor kid who had just had a seizure right before we got there and he was just sticking his finger in a a container of baby formula because there was no water that the baby could drink when the parents wanted to make sure the baby wasn't hungry. So the kid was just kind of sticking their finger in the the formula container and just eating that powdered formula just to get some sort of nutrients. I mean, I will say all the kids we saw had some sort of upper respiratory illness. Everybody was sick. um, And there's very limited opportunities to bathe as well.
0: Well, as you say, this is part of the caravan of migrants that had come from uh, Central America. Do officials there have any idea of the number of children who are currently among the caravan?
1: Well, that's a great question. And what we discovered is the children aren't necessarily making themselves available to be counted. So there is not a clear number of how many children or more specifically unaccompanied children are there. What we learned while we were there is that because of a confusion of both understanding of Mexican law as well as American law, kids were getting funneled, if they were identified as unaccompanied, they were getting funneled into this Mexican child welfare system that was effectively prohibiting them from accessing protection at the U.S. border. Um, It was kind of a perverse result of a system that was designed to protect these children. Um, So a lot of kids had found out that if they're identified by the Mexican child welfare system, they would be immediately sent back to their country. So they were actually trying to evade the child welfare workers.
0: Yeah, I want to actually Really talk about that in, in just a moment. But what I'd like to do for listeners first is kind of lay out what's supposed to happen, because uh, your report really does specify a lot of, you know, what is happening with governmental agencies on the Mexico side. And I do want to unpack that, but kind of walk us through previous to these Trump administration policies. What is supposed to happen when a child arrives unaccompanied to the U.S. border or rather what has previously happened?
1: Sure. So under U.S. law, what should happen is that a child should be able to either present themselves at a port of entry or turn themselves into a border patrol agent between a port of entry. And there is a specific law that provides what the, the steps should the next steps that should happen. and it's called um, it's a law that was passed in 2008 and it's called the Trafficking Victim Protection Act. And it was written um, and signed into law because it, the Congress wanted to ensure that there were specific protections for this very vulnerable population. What should happen is a child should be uh, received immediately, put into a secondary holding cell um, at the port or at a border patrol station, and immediately Customs and Border Protection should be calling the Office of Refugee Resettlement. They are a branch of Health and Human Services who's tasked with providing care and custody to unaccompanied children. So immediately the the, the Customs Enforcement a uh, person should pick up the phone and call a person over at the Office of Refugee with Settlement and say, hey, we have an unaccompanied children, child here. Please come pick them up so that they can be held in a facility that's more appropriate for children so they're not languishing in those ice boxes along the border. Right. Now, then their immigration court starts – immigration case starts immediately. So that Customs and Border Protection official would start the paperwork to put that child into deportation proceedings if they don't have a visa with them that, that allows them to enter with previous authorization, they would be put into deportation proceedings, but the law is very specific, and it says children can't just be turned around at the border. They need to be received. They need to go to a detention facility that's appropriate for children, and they must have the right to speak to a judge about their case. They can't just be summarily deported uh, like an adult can be.
0: Well, and, you know, circling back to what you referred to earlier about children being unable to even reach the border, you say that the Mexican government is... It's actively blocking unaccompanied children um are are Mexican officials physically there preventing them from approaching the u s border
1: yeah, I mean it's amazing. we were walking around and we tried to walk up to the border to see what would happen. what would be the experience of a child if they were going to walk up and you know, when you start getting close to the port of entry, there's a private security guard, an armed private security guard that asks who you are, you know, asks to see your paperwork before they let you even get close to the bridge. And so we asked that person, we said, if, you know, if we were an unaccompanied child from Honduras, what would you do with us? And they said, we would hold you and we would call the Mexican child welfare um, officials um, immediately to come get you and to figure out if you should be deported you know, back to your country. Um, then if they can get past the private security guard, you walk another 30 yards and there's Mexican immigration enforcement agents at the you know, kind of very left part of the entrance to the US territory, um, where again, you would go through another review and they would want to look at your papers and ask you questions. Um, if you can get past those two armed officials, then you have the ability to walk across the bridge and present yourself to a US official. So when we were interviewing children, we met a lot of children who'd been turned around either by Mexican private security or Mexican immigration enforcement. And then we met some children who, who were able to make it pass, either because they were traveling with a group, or they had been accompanied by a volunteer attorney, or somebody was able to, to convince the officials to let them through. And then they were turned away by U.S. officials, which is in direct violation of U.S. law.
0: Is, is there a sense then that these officials from Mexico and U.S. officials are coordinating on actively blocking these unaccompanied children from reaching the U.S. border?
1: You know, that's a great question. That's something that we tried to figure out while we were there. And it's unclear. Um, you know, Mexico, their take is they feel that As um, According to their child welfare law, if they encounter an unaccompanied child, they need to immediately call the child welfare agency, and then that child welfare agency will screen the child and offer them one of two things. They will offer them asylum in Mexico or they will offer them assisted return back to their home country. But they will not let them go and then present themselves to the U.S. officials.
0: And, you know, for people who may wonder about the safety of children remaining in Tijuana, you include uh, in your report the story of 200 children who were murdered at a shelter for migrant youths there. So it's, it's really not a safe place for children, is it?
1: Oh, it's absolutely not safe. I mean, like I said, the place where everybody's living, you don't know who is walking in and out of there. There are a lot of bad actors there waiting to take advantage of this vulnerable population. Um, You know, as you mentioned earlier, there was a story of a girl who everybody in the community knew she was prostituting herself at night. She was 16 so that she could take care of her 13-year-old sibling. Um, There were children that we had talked to who had been murdered, Uh, the day after we left. um, And it was unclear what happened with that. But it is an incredibly dangerous place. And and these poor people are like sitting ducks sitting there waiting. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not protected. They're sleeping in tents. They don't have access to money or other support. And they're trying to hide from the child welfare officials so that they may have an opportunity to ask for protection in the United States.
0: Well, it's it's just it's all horrific what you describe. And you know, I will just ask you, you know, aid workers or journalists who encounter this sort of thing may have developed some coping mechanisms. But I'm wondering what impact did seeing all of this have on you personally?
1: That's a great question. I, You know, I've been doing this work and advocating on behalf of immigrant children for many years, and I've heard you know horrific things. I've never seen or been in a place like that. Before, and I will tell you, I was only there for a couple of days and I came home so very, very sick. I mean, I was really sick when I got home and I was only there for two days. And all I could think was I have the luxury of walking into an urgent care place and the doctor will see me and, and provide me, you know, subscribe me the medication I need. And I just was thinking about these poor kids who've been there for month after month and they don't see a way out. There is no way that they can access protection. A lot of them had family members in the United States, which is why they wanted to ask for protection in the U.S. Mm. and not in Mexico. And others, they suffered horrific crimes while they were transversing through Mexico, so they didn't feel safe asking for asylum in Mexico and staying in Mexico. And these poor kids were really stuck in this purgatory, trying to figure out what to do. They couldn't present themselves, and they didn't want to go home either. They didn't feel like it was safe to go home either.
0: Well, you know, you speak in your report about something that I think a lot of people on the the immigrant rights, uh, in the immigrant rights community in the United States have been trying to call attention to, and that is uh, the United States role ultimately in the, the degraded conditions that you see in countries like uh, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala. Uh, you say in your report, quote, the United States and other stakeholders should address the root causes that are driving people to take the life-threatening journey to try to enter the United States by helping El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala promote child protection and the rule of law and address corruption and the gang and narco-trafficker violence that pushes most children and families to flee. So we're not likely to get anything of the sort under this administration, but under a different future administration, what would that change look like to you?
1: That's a great question. I mean, I think it's twofold. I think addressing the root causes of migration, what are the real reasons why these kids feel like they can't stay in their communities? That's a long-term goal, right? That's not going to be fixed overnight. You can't write one check and expect all corruption and impunity to end in the countries. So that's really a long-term goal. At the same time, what we need to be doing is not spending our money on sending military down there to the border to prohibit babies and young children from asking for protection. What would be cheaper and much more efficient is beefing up the procedures that we already have to get to the bottom of people's stories and make determinations who is able to safely return to their home country and who really um qualifies for protection in the united states and should remain in the united states so that would look like making sure that there are enough asylum officers to do very quick interviews at the border to make help make those determinations it would mean um, funding organizations like kind that can find free attorneys for kids that kids can tell their story in a succinct way and go through the court system very efficiently all these things are going to be much less expensive and really ensure that we're not sending somebody back to their death, but that were able to really get to the bottom of people's story and figure out who needs to stay in the United States and who can safely go home.
0: And in terms of because we're talking to the activist community here in Washington State and across the country, are there specific calls to action for activists uh, that you would, would like people to be aware of?
1: I, I I think what we've seen particularly this summer when we saw the horrific family separations happening at the border, how powerful Americans voices are when they speak up against injustices. And so everybody is struggling and and federal workers are reeling across the country um, from um, this government shutdown. And so I think really feeling empowered to speak up, not just by picking up the phone and calling your representative or your senator, but talking about these issues at dinner, talking about with your friends, making very very clear where you draw the line um, and uh, being very vocal with your opinion. I think what we saw this summer is people joined marches. They talked about it on social media and Americans drew a very clear red line in the sand, and they said, you will not do this in our name. You cannot tear babies away from their parents in our name. And I think we need to be doing the same thing with uh, the situation of asylum seekers who are languishing in dangerous, unsanitary conditions in Mexico. Say, so you can't force them to sit there Let them come in, let them process, and let us figure out, you know, let our justice system work so we can figure out what we need to do with everybody.
0: Yeah, you know, I I think you're right. People really did find their voices around the crisis with the child separation policy, and it is time to call on people to do it again. Uh, I will be providing a link for people to donate to KIND, and I'll also have a link to your report for people to read at indivisiblepodcast.org. Jennifer Podcole is the Senior Director of Policy and Advocacy at the DCB group Kids in Need of Defense. Jennifer, thank you so much for your work, and thank you for joining us again.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: And as this is the first official show of the year, it would not be complete without checking in with our friend Stephen Wilhelm for our calls to action. Stephen is the research team leader for Indivisible Washington's 8th District. Hello, Stephen.
2: Hey, good morning, Stefan. Happy New Year.
0: Happy New Year to you, too, brother. Did you uh, have a good uh, holiday?
2: Yep, pretty fabulous. I uh, had, a, had a great uh, time with families, and uh, the little personal note, got to celebrate my mom's uh, 85th
0: birthday. Oh, with, wow. Happy uh, birthday, family, mom. That's so that awesome. That fabulous.
2: Yeah, yeah. Cool.
0: Well, I hope that you also got a little rest, because uh, I think it's going to be a busy year busy year. Well, so let's just jump right into it. Um, And we'll start with a couple of calls to action that uh, will address the ongoing government shutdown. Uh, So previous to Trump's primetime address on Tuesday night, Indivisibles had been asking senators to withhold consent until the House's funding bills to open the government can be brought in for a Senate vote. Uh, Chuck Schumer had needed 41 of 47 Democrats, and he got them, including our two senators. So uh, well done there, gang. Um, We we have talked about withholding consent in the past, but I think we could use a refresher. But first, just give us some background on where we're at right now with the shutdown. There, there are a lot of moving parts here, right?
2: Exactly right. There are def- definitely a lot of moving parts, and uh, you know, without getting too uh, ner- nerdy about it, there, there are—I'll um, call it—seven uh, cabinet agencies that still remain to be funded, so Mm. that's that's about a quarter of the government. And there's about 800,000 federal workers who, who are affected by this shutdown. About half of them are being forced to work without pay, including uh, the group that I used to work for, the Coast Guard, um, and the other half have been uh, sent home. So there, there's a lot of people that are dealing with, a lot of federal employees dealing with uh, financial uncertainty. And in the meantime, there, there's a lot of uh, the government that, that should be working that's not. Um, you know, here locally, um, Mount Rainier National Park is is shut down now because of the um, because of the government shutdown. And, uh, you know, that's, um, you know, there is a situation where the administration has tried to um, not have the shutdown have an impact by by letting things stay open, letting parks specifically stay open without having the staff there to deal with it. Yeah. Um, so that's one way where they're trying to avoid um, bad publicity.
1: But another way where
2: they're trying to be- avoid bad publicity um, may be illegal in that, um, you know, everybody's real, exercise or disturbed that uh, they may not be getting their um, income tax refunds um, especially uh, you know early early on in the shutdown um and so the administration is trying to bring IRS employees back to work uh, to call them um uh, you know vital uh, employees who have to come to work and um The Anti-Deficiency Act doesn't appear to allow that. So so the administration is really trying to bend over backwards to um, not have all the chickens come home to roost um, on on this shutdown that they've created. So um, what the House is trying to do, really good strategy, I think, is every day they're trying to fund one or more agencies. Like today they're trying to fund, uh, I I think it's the – Uh, Treasury and maybe one or two others. And every day they're going to try and pass a bill um, that highlights that, well, here's another agency that we could get going if the um, Republicans would just go along with it in the Senate, um, which is really where a lot of the action is. Um, Mitch McConnell is refusing to um, he's saying he can't uh, take up any bill that the um, president would refuse to sign, which, of course, is baloney. What's um, ridiculous, um, because,
0: because the, the Senate passed a stopgap measure last month, 100 to one, right?
2: right? Exactly so. And the way the Constitution set up, perhaps the president might recall this or Mitch McConnell <laughs> might recall, um, there's something called a veto override. Right. If you've got 100 votes in the Senate, you can definitely Um, override uh, the president's veto, and I think it's about 290 votes in the House um, anyway, two-thirds of the House, uh, 435 votes is required to override. So he can veto it if he wants, and Congress can certainly make an attempt to override the veto. So anyway—
0: Well, so what that does then, and, and I've heard this strategy put forward, is that puts the pressure on Mitch McConnell, right? Because as you say, he actually does potentially have the power to resolve the situation, and he is choosing not to act. So, uh, exactly. that, so as I just mentioned, uh, the strategy, which was adopted uh, by— Ch- Schumer to withhold consent um, succeeded. And that effectively means that the Senate will refuse to do any other business until the government is opened up. So we've successfully deployed this strategy. But as the shutdown continues, we are likely going to have to ask our senators to do this again in the future, right?
2: yeah exactly right and and I, the thing that i would encourage your listeners is that um i think the strategy is working at least from what i read i think there's um five republican senators at this point who have come out and said that they they do not support the Mitch McConnell strategy and they want to get the government reopened um so if we can get uh the, what's the number about uh well, definitely, if we get five more Republican senators, and we, we definitely, um, you know, can get things moving. But but the strategy is having the effect we want it to have. We need to to keep keep true to this path. Don't don't get um, don't get distracted. Don't get dissuaded. Keep calling our senators and encourage them to keep doing what they're doing. Don't allow, which is don't allow any business to be done in in the Senate. Don't take up any bills exactly like they did yesterday um, until we get. Um, bills passed to reopen
0: the government. Great. Okay, so then just to boil that down, the strategy is first to call our senators, uh, Cantwell and Murray, and to thank them and then to ask them to continue to hold the line on that. All right. So uh, let's talk about the move to investigate Trump's atrocities at the border. So as we all know, he went on primetime last night to make uh, his case for the wall. But um, pretty much everybody who is familiar with the situation at the border knows that there, in fact, is not an immigration crisis. Uh, Illegal crossings are at their lowest levels in decades, and uh, suspected terrorists have been apprehended, but at our airports, which, of course, is ironic because, as you mentioned earlier, the government shutdown has been seriously affecting a lot of government uh, agencies, including the TSA. Uh, Agents are apparently calling in sick and not showing up. Um, But what there actually is at the border is a humanitarian crisis resulting from the Trump administration's treatment of asylum seekers. Some Uh, 280 people have died in detention, including uh, two children. So what can what more can you tell us about the situation? And what are we asking our members of Congress to do?
2: Yeah, actually, you gave a really uh, great synopsis, Stephen. So I I don't think I can add too much to it other than to say, you know, not only did uh, those two children die, and obviously, every death is is a tragedy. But um, there have not been from what I've read, there haven't been children die in detention for 10 years. There's a reason why the um, accepted Justice Department position was you have to keep um, children in the least um, restrictive uh, situation possible um, for exactly this and many other reasons. So there is a crisis on the border. It's the crisis that the Trump administration has created, so the action is to call our representatives, and now that uh, we have a Democratic majority in the House, we can actually investigate what the administration is doing. So we definitely want to call um, our congressional representatives um, and ask them to support um, House Judiciary and Homeland Security Committee's investigation in specifically into these children's deaths, but also into what the administration is doing to um, what I'll call meter or, or limit um, the applications that asylum seekers can can make at the borders. They, they are creating the logjam at the border that's creating all these uh, humanitarian um, uh, terrible conditions.
0: Yeah. The investigatory power is certainly one of the areas where Democrats can really show some real flex. I think we're probably going to see a lot of gridlock legislatively, but... Uh it, it,
2: it, exactly. The, 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 this is where the administration's um, created crisis, and his, you know, speech last night is really distracting Congress and the House specifically from the work that they should be doing. They're having to deal with this reopening the government, and they they can't they can't investigate because they're spending so much of their time trying to figure out how to get the government open.
0: Right. So we want to, uh, as they say, walk and chew gum. So we encourage them to do that. So and then finally, uh, in light of the fact that Trump's cabinet and appointees are uh, largely interim at this point, including the attorney general, uh, we're looking at a new nominee coming up, William Barr. So tell us about him
2: bet. Uh, so uh just did, uh, the, from a scheduled perspective he uh, william Barr has just started his courtesy meetings with senators uh today, and uh I think I read this morning that uh, the judiciary uh, committee is scheduled to um hold hearings on his nomination the, the next the fifteenth on the fifteenth next week um so he is something we definitely want to call our senators. he is a a nominee that we definitely want to call our senators and ask them to um Make public statements opposing and to vote um, opposing him when when he finally comes to the the floor. He, he's got a known conflict of interest. His job application to the uh, administration, if you will, was an unsolicited memo that he wrote um, saying that that he doesn't think that uh, Robert Mueller has the authority that that he does have to to uh, make the investigation or, or conduct the investigation that that he's undertaking right now. Um, He's also got a long record of arguing for expansive presidential power ramping up mass incarcerations and attacking civil rights. So no wonder that uh, Donald Trump thought he would be the perfect attorney general for his yeah, I'm
0: sensing a trend here um, with uh, Trump's nominees who yeah. <laughs> believe in uh, expanded executive power.
2: Exactly. So he is a man after the president's heart, no question. And, and so this is especially concerning, in, in my mind, in light of the news reports that we're hearing just starting today that um, Rod Rosenstein plans to um, – retire, resign, uh, uh, resign from the Justice uh, Department after the new attorney general is um, is approved. So if we're going to have somebody else be in charge of the Mueller investigation, William Barr is not the man we want in charge. So we definitely um, want to ask our senators to do everything they possibly can, withhold consent, jam up the works, but don't do anything to allow William Barr to be approved as attorney general.
0: All right, Stephen. Well, thank you for all of your uh, excellent research, as always. Thanks for joining us here, and Happy New Year.
2: My pleasure. Happy New Year to you and your listeners, Stefan
0: and that's going to do it for this week's show for links to everything that we talk about here on the show you can of course go to indivisiblepodcast.org you can subscribe to the show there too the email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com and the twitter handle is at indivisiblepod the Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc thank you again to my guest Jennifer Podcole thank you to Stephen Wilhelm and before we go I will wish a very happy birthday to the love of my life Lori Caldwell, happy birthday honey as always thanks to you guys for listening we'll talk to you next time, bye